The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 15 before I start the reading, actually, I do want to share with you uh, an absolutely delightful um, little uh, gem that has has sort of come across. Hello, Niels. Uh, that came across my desk, as it were, uh, this week. I got a, a bit of fan mail, of all things. Could you believe that? From a very lovely uh, lady called Bridget, who was just basically saying uh, that she's hugely. She actually found the um, uh, the 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 spot the the oh, sorry the podcast versions of of this on Spotify, um, and uh, that she'd been listening to it and that it had been helping, having been sort of isolating and in quarantine and all sorts of other stuff for a long time. Uh, and that she was really, 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 really enjoying um, uh, the the readings on on Spotify. So I was incredibly touched by that. So thank you very much for that, Bridget. And then that got me to thinking, oh, well, let's. I wonder what's going on. I haven't even checked to see how things are uh, are running. And I I went on to Spotify uh, and I, I found all of the basic uh, kind of uh, details and and discovered that. Um, all, uh, there, there are 14 episodes up on Spotify at the moment, and that uh, with those, uh, in that, those have been listened to in 25 countries around the world, which blew my mind, by over 6,000 different people, of which 2,500 of those listeners have listened to all 14 episodes from start to finish. Um, now, this is a project that started as a little bit of fun for me, with my family and friends and has grown organically into something that has absolutely blown my mind. I am so pleased that so many people are tuning in and, and that, that are getting, uh, are basically getting the whole principle of this, which is basically to have fun. Hello, Ralesh, uh, Ralesh Ramnand uh, from South Africa, checking in, uh, case in point. Um, uh, I've got a huge audience, it seems, in South Africa, which is bonkers. I love it. Um, so I'm really, really pleased that you guys are here. It, make, it, it genuinely makes this all worthwhile. Uh, this started, as I say, as a bit of fun for my family and friends, and and it has turned into something that is is slightly bigger than that, uh, and that is clearly touching other people um, in the way that it was originally intended, which was to to make. Um, the weird world that we live in currently a little less weird and a little more fun and perhaps a little more a little smaller and a little closer and a little more friendly so thank you all everybody um for taking part in in uh, what is a very silly idea from my head uh, and for enjoying it um and for sharing the fact that you're enjoying it um with me in in, in letters and stuff in, in mails just makes it so much more worthwhile so thank you from the from the heart of my bottom um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It really does mean a hell of a lot to me uh, that you're all following. So thank you. Um, right. So let's crack on. Uh, we are in uh, still sort of making our way through life, the universe and everything. The third book um, of the five book trilogy. Um, and we are about I was just checking. We're just over halfway through, perhaps a little bit more than halfway through it. I don't think we're going to finish it this evening. So what I will do is do the reading this evening and then one next week so we can finish off the book. If we don't finish it this evening, as I say, I don't think we will. Um, and then we'll uh, I'll, I'll do we'll wrap up life, the universe and everything. And then if you lovely people don't mind, I will take a short break uh, of, a, of a sort of two, three weeks. Um, where I won't do any readings, I'll just sort of uh, rest and recoup and, and, and whatever, and then we'll crack on with the rest of the books um, in August uh, and September, um, if that's okay with everybody. Um, and then what I'd like you all, um, uh, listeners, 
dear listeners, to do is is once we've done all of this, if you would like me to continue, um, uh, come up with some ideas of books that you'd like me to read, and I will gladly carry on doing so because I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, thank you very much, everybody. Let us crack on. I hope you've got your teas on and your towels and, and your, or maybe beer or gin and tonic or wine or whatever your your particular tipple is. Um, and that you're all sitting comfortably. Um, and I'll crack on with the next chapter. So, now just to recap, uh, for those of you who were listening last week or haven't quite caught up, um, we have just found out that uh, Arthur Dent is a multiple murderer. Um, he has been responsible for countless deaths of the same person who turns out to be called Agrajag. And Agrajag was about to meet his revenge out upon Arthur um, in his Temple of Hate, uh, only to find out that he'd brought him to the Temple of Hate too soon. So this was supposed to be his last life and his last uh, opportunity to kill um, Arthur Dent in revenge for all of the many deaths that Arthur Dent had inadvertently caused him. But unfortunately, he cocked it up and died in the attempt to kill Arthur. That really sucks. Let's face it. So we'll pick up where we left off. Although it has been said that on Earth alone in our galaxy is cricket treated as a fit subject for a game, and that for this reason the Earth has been shunned, this does not apply to our galaxy only, and more specifically to our dimension only. In some of the higher dimensions, they feel that they can more or less please themselves and have been playing a peculiar game called Brockian Ultra Cricket for whatever their transdimensional equivalent of billions of years is. Let's be blunt. It's a nasty game, says the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But then anyone who has been to any of the higher dimensions will know that there are pretty nasty heathen lot up there who should just be smashed and done in, and would be, too, if anyone could work out a way of firing missiles at right angles to reality. This is another example of the fact that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will employ anybody who wants to walk <laughs> straight in off the street and get ripped off, especially if they happen to walk in off the street during the afternoon when very few of the regular staff are actually there. There is a fundamental point here. The history of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of idealism, struggle, despair, passion, success, failure, and enormously long lunch breaks. The earliest origins of the guide are now, along with most of its financial records, lost in the mists of time. For other and more curious theories about where they are lost, see below. Most of the surviving stories, however, speak of a founding editor called Hurling Fruitmig. Hurling Fruitmig, it is said, founded the guide established its fundamental principles of honesty and idealism, and went bust. There followed many years of penury and heart-searching, during which he consulted friends, sat in darkened rooms in illegal states of mind, thought about this and that, fooled about with weights, and then, after a chance encounter with the holy lunching friars of Vundun, who claimed that just as lunch was at the centre of a man's temporal day, and man's temporal day could be seen as an analogy for his spiritual life, so lunch should a. be seen as the centre of a man's spiritual life, and b. be held in Johnny Nice restaurants. He refounded the guide, laid down its fundamental principles of honesty and idealism, and where you could stuff them both, and led the guide onto its first major commercial success. 
He also started to develop and explore the role of the editorial lunch break, which was subsequently to play such a crucial part in the guide's history, since it meant that most of the actual work got done by any passing stranger who happened to wander into the empty offices of an afternoon and saw something worth doing. Shortly after this, the guide was taken over by Megadodo Publications of Ursa Minor Beta, thus putting the whole thing on a very sound financial footing, and allowing the fourth editor, Lig Lurie Jr., to embark on lunch breaks of such breathtaking scope that even the efforts of recent editors, who started undertaking sponsored lunch breaks for charity, seem like mere sandwiches in comparison. In fact, Lig never formally resigned his editorship, he merely left his office late one morning and has never since returned. Though well over a century has now passed, many members of the guide staff still retain the romantic notion that he has simply popped out for a ham croissant and will yet return to put in a solid afternoon's work. Strictly speaking, all editors since Lig Lurie Jr. have therefore been designated acting editors, and Lig's desk is still preserved the way he left it, with the addition of a small sign, which says, Lig Lurie Jr., Editor, Missing, Presumed Fed. Some very scurrilous and subversive sources hint at the idea that Lig actually perished in the guide's first extraordinary experiments in alternative bookkeeping. Very little is known of this, and less still said. Anyone who notices, let alone calls attention to the curious but utterly coincidental and meaningless fact that every word on which the guide has ever been has ever set up sorry. Anyone who even notices, let alone calls attention to, the curious but utterly coincidental and meaningless fact that every world on which the guide has ever set up an accounting department has shortly afterwards perished in warfare or some natural disaster is liable to get sued to smithereens. It is an interesting, though utterly unrelated, fact that the two or three days prior to the demolition of the planet Earth to make way for a new hyperspace bypass saw a dramatic upsurge in the number of UFO sightings there, not only above Lord's Cricket Ground in St John's Wood, London, but also above Glastonbury in Somerset. Glastonbury had long been associated with myths of ancient kings of witchcraft, ley lines and wart curing, and had now been selected as the site for the new Hitchhiker's Guide Financial Records Office. And indeed, ten years' worth of financial records were transferred to a magic hill just outside the city, mere hours before the Vogons arrived. None of these facts, however strange or inexplicable, is as strange or inexplicable as the rules of the game of Brockian Ultra Cricket, as played in the higher dimensions. A full set of rules is so massively complicated that the only time they were all bound together in a single volume, they underwent gravitational collapse and became a black hole. A brief summary, however, is as follows. Rule 1. Grow at least three extra legs. You won't need them, but it keeps the crowds amused. Rule 2. Find one good Brockian Ultra Cricket player. Clone him off a few times. This saves an enormous amount of tedious time, selection and training. Rule 3. Put your team and the opposing team in a large field and build a high wall around them. The reason for this is that though the game is a major spectator sport, the frustration experienced by the audience at not actually being able to see what's going on leads them to imagine that it's a lot more exciting than it really is. A crowd that has just watched a rather humdrum game experiences far less life affirmation than a crowd that believes it has just missed the most dramatic event in sporting history. Rule 4. 
throw lots of assorted items of sporting equipment over the wall for the players. Anything will do. Cricket bats, base cube bats, tennis guns, skis, anything, basically, that you can get a good swing with. Rule 5. The players should now lay about themselves for all they are worth with whatever they find to hand. Whenever a player scores a hit on another player, he should immediately run away and apologise from a safe distance. Apologies should be concise, sincere, and for maximum clarity and points, delivered through a megaphone. Rule 6. The winning team shall be the first team that wins. Curiously enough, the more, uh, the more the obsession with the game grows in the higher dimensions, the less it is actually played, since most of the competing teams are now in a state of permanent warfare with each other over the interpreta interpretation of these rules. This is all for the best, because in the long run, a good solid war is less psychologically damaging than a protracted game of Brockian ultra cricket. As Arthur ran darting and panting down the side of the mountain, he suddenly felt the whole bulk of the mountain move very, very slightly beneath him. There was a rumble, a roar, and a slight blurred movement, and a lick of heat in the distance behind and above him. He ran in a frenzy of fear. The land began to slide, and he suddenly felt the force of the word landslide in a way which had never been apparent to him before. It had always been just a word to him, but now he was suddenly and horribly aware that sliding is a strange and sickening thing for a land to do. It was doing it with him on it. He felt ill with fear and shaking. The ground slid, the mountain slurred, he slipped, he fell, he stood, he slipped again and ran. The avalanche began. Stones, then rocks, then boulders pranced past him like clumsy puppies, only much much bigger, much, much harder and heavier, and almost infinitely more likely to kill you if they fell on you. His eyes danced with them, his feet danced with the dancing ground. He ran as if running was a terrible sweating sickness. His heart pounded to the rhythm of the pounding geological frenzy around him. The logic of the situation i.e. that he was clearly bound to survive if the next foreshadowed incident in the saga of his inadvertent persecution of Agrajag was to happen, was utterly failing to impinge itself on his mind or exercise any restraining influence on him at this time. He ran with the fear of death in him, under him, over him, and grabbing hold of his hair. And suddenly he tripped again and was hurled forward by his considerable momentum. But just at the moment that he was about to hit the ground astoundingly hard, he saw lying directly in front of him a small navy blue holdall that he knew for a fact he had lost in the baggage retrieval system at Athens Airport some ten years in his personal timescale previously. And in his astonishment, he missed the ground completely and bobbed off into the air with his brain singing. What he was doing was this. He was flying. He glanced around him in surprise, but there could be no doubt that that was what he was doing. No part of him was touching the ground, and no part of him was even approaching it. He was simply floating there, 
with boulders hurtling through the air around him. He could now do something about that. Blinking with the non-effort of it, he wafted higher into the air, and now the boulders were hurtling through the air beneath him. He looked downwards with intense curiosity. Between him and the shivering ground, there were now some thirty feet of empty air. Empty, that is, if you discounted the boulders, which didn't stay in it for long, but bounded downwards in the iron grip of the law of gravity. The same law which seemed, all of a sudden, to have given Arthur a sabbatical. It occurred to him almost instantly, with the instinctive correctness that self-preservation instils in the mind, that he mustn't try to think about it, that if he did, the law of gravity would suddenly glance sharply in his direction and demand to know just what the hell he thought he was doing up there, and all would suddenly be lost. So he thought about tulips. It was difficult, but he did. He thought about the pleasing, firm roundness of the bottom of tulips. He thought about the interesting variety of colours they came in, and wondered what proportion of the total number of tulips that grew, or had grown, on the earth would be found within a radius of one mile of a windmill. After a while, he got dangerously bored with this train of thought, felt the air slipping away beneath him, felt that he was drifting down into the paths of the bouncing boulders that he was trying so hard not to think about, so he thought about Athens Airport for a bit, and that kept him usefully annoyed for about five minutes, at the end of which he was startled to discover that he was now floating about two hundred yards above the ground. He wondered for a moment how he was going to get back down to it, but instantly shied away from that area of speculation again and tried to look at the situation steadily. He was flying. What was he going to do about it? He looked back down at the ground. He didn't look at it hard, but did his best just to give it an idle glance, as it were, in passing. There were a couple of things he couldn't help noticing. One was that the eruption of the mountain seemed now to have spent itself. There was just a crater a little way beneath the peak, presumably where the rock had caved in on top of the huge cavernous cathedral, the statue of himself, and the sadly abused figure of Agrajag. The other was his hold-all the one that he had lost at Athens Airport. It was sitting pertly on a piece of clear ground, surrounded by exhausted boulders, but apparently hit by none of them. Why this should be, he could not speculate. But since this mystery was completely overshadowed by the monstrous impossibility of the bag being there in the first place, it was not a speculation he felt strong enough for anyway. The thing is, it was there, and the nasty fake leopard-skin bag seemed to have disappeared, which was all to the good, if not entirely to the explicable. He was faced with the fact that he was going to have to pick the thing up. Here he was, flying along 200 yards above the surface of an alien planet, the name of which he couldn't even remember, he could not, he could not ignore the plaintive posture of this tiny piece of what used to be his life here, so many light years from the pulverised remains of his home. Furthermore, he realised, the bag, if it was still in the state in which he lost it, would contain a can which would have in it the only Greek olive oil still surviving in the universe. Slowly, carefully, inch by inch, he began to bob downwards, swinging gently from side to side like a nervous sheet of paper feeling its way towards the ground. It went well. He was feeling good. The air supported him, but let him through. 
Two minutes later, he was hovering a mere two feet above the bag and was faced with some difficult decisions. He bobbed there lightly. He frowned, but again as lightly as he could. If he picked the bag up, could he carry it? Mightn't the extra weight just pull him straight to the ground? Mightn't the mere act of touching something on the ground suddenly discharge whatever mysterious force it was that was holding him in the air? Mightn't he be better off just being sensible at this point and stepping out of the air back onto the ground for a moment or two? If he did, would he ever be able to fly again? The sensation when he allowed himself to be aware of it, was so quietly ecstatic that he could not bear the thought of losing it, perhaps forever. With this worry in mind, he bobbed upwards a little again, just to try the feel of it, the surprising and effortless movement of it. He bobbed. He floated. He tried a little swoop. The swoop was terrific. With his arms spread out in front of him, his hair and dressing gown streaming out behind him, he dived down out of the sky, bellied along a a body of air about two feet from the ground, and swung back up again, catching himself at the top of the swing and holding, just holding. He stayed there. It was wonderful. And that, he realised, was the way of picking up the bag. He would swoop down and catch hold of it just at the point of the upswing. He would carry it on up with him. He might wobble a bit, but he was certain that he could hold it. He tried one or two more practice swoops and they got better and better. The air on his face, the bounce and woof of his body, all combined to make him feel an intoxication of the spirit that he hadn't felt since, since, well, as far as he could work out since he was born. He drifted away on the breeze and surveyed the countryside, which was, he discovered, pretty nasty. It had a wasted, ravaged look. He decided not to look at it any more. He would just pick up the bag and then, well, he didn't know what he was going to do after that. He decided he would just pick up the bag and see where things went from there. He judged himself against the wind, pushed up against it and turned around. He floated on its body. He didn't realise, but his body was willowing at this point. He ducked down under the airstream, dipped and dived. The air threw itself past him. He thrilled through it. The ground wobbled uncertainly, straightened its ideas out and rose smoothly up to meet him, offering the bag its cracked plastic handles up towards him. Halfway down, there was a sudden dangerous moment when he could no longer believe he was doing this, and therefore he very nearly wasn't. But he recovered himself in time, skimmed over the ground, slipped an arm smoothly through the handles of the bag, and began to climb back up. Couldn't make it, and all of a sudden collapsed, bruised, scratched, and shaking on the stony ground. He staggered instantly to his feet and swayed hopelessly around, swinging the the bag around him in an agony of grief and disappointment. His feet suddenly were stuck heavily to the ground in the way that they had always been. His body seemed like an unwieldy sack of potatoes that reeled stumbling against the ground. His mind had all the lightness of a bag of lead. He sagged and swayed and ached with giddiness. He tried hopelessly to run, but his legs were suddenly too weak. He tripped and flopped forward. At that moment, he remembered that in the bag he was now carrying not only a can of Greek olive oil, but a duty-free allowance of retsina. And in the pleasurable shock of that realisation, he failed to notice for at least 
ten seconds that he was now flying again. He whooped and cried with relief and pleasure and sheer physical delight. He swooped, he wheeled, he skidded and whirled through the air. Cheekily, he sat on an updraft and went through the contents of the holdall. He felt the way he imagined and he imagined an, a- an angel must feel uh, doing its celebrated dance on the head of a pin whilst being counted by philosophers. He laughed with pleasure at the discovery that the bag did in fact contain the olive oil and the retsina, as well as a pair of cracked sunglasses, some sand-filled swimming trunks, some creased postcards of Santorini, a large and unsightly towel, some interesting stones, and various scraps of paper with the addresses of people he was relieved to think he would never meet again, even if the reason why was a sad one. He dropped the stones, put on the sunglasses, and let the pieces of paper whip away in the wind. Ten minutes later, drifting idly through a cloud, he got a large and extremely disreputable cocktail party in the small of the back. Morty. The longest and most destructive party ever held is now into its fourth generation and still no one shows any signs of leaving. Somebody did once look at his watch but that was 11 years ago now and there has been no follow-up. The mess is extraordinary and has to be seen to be believed but if you don't have any particular need to believe it then don't go and look because you won't enjoy it. There have recently been some bangs and flashes up in the clouds, and there is one theory that this is a battle being fought between the fleets of several rival carpet-cleaning companies who are hovering over the thing like vultures. But you shouldn't believe anything, anything you hear at parties, and particularly not anything you hear at this one. I've been to parties like that. One of the problems... And it's one which is obviously going to get worse, is that all the people at the party are either the children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of the people who wouldn't leave in the first place. And because all of the business about selective breeding and regressive genes and so on, it means that all the people now at the party are either absolutely fanatical party-goers or gibbering idiots. Or, and more and more frequently... Both. Either way, it means that genetically speaking, each succeeding generation is now less likely to leave than the preceding one. So other factors come into operation, like when the drink is going to run out. Now, because of certain things which have happened which seemed like a good idea at the time, and one of the problems with a party which never stops is that all the things which only seem like a good idea at parties continue to seem like good ideas, the point seems still to be a long way off. One of the things which seemed like a good idea at the time was that the party should fly. Not in the normal sense that parties are to fly, but literally. One night, long ago, A band of drunken astro-engineers of the first generation clambered around the building, digging this, fixing that, banging very hard on the other, and when the sun rose the following morning, it was startled to find itself shining on a building full of happy, drunken people, which was now floating like a young and uncertain bird above the treetops. Not only that, but the flying party had also managed to arm itself rather heavily, If they were going to get involved in any petty arguments with wine merchants, they wanted to make damn sure they had might on their side. The transition from full-time cocktail party to part-time raiding party came with ease, and did much to add that extra bit of zest and swing to the whole affair, which was badly needed at this point, because of the enormous number of times that the band had already played all the numbers it knew over the years. They looted. They raided. They held whole cities to ransom for fresh supplies of cheese crackers, avocado dip, spare ribs and wine and spirits, which would now get piped aboard from floating tankers. 
The problem of when the drink is going to run out, however, is going to have to be faced one day. The planet over which they are floating is no longer the planet it was when they first started floating over it. It is in bad shape. The party has attacked and raided an awful lot of it, and no one has ever succeeded in hitting it back because of the erratic and unpredictable way in which it lurches around the sky. It is one hell of a party. It is also one hell of a thing to get hit by in the small of the back. Arthur lay floundering in pain on a piece of ripped and dismembered reinforced concrete, flicked at by wisps of passing cloud and confused by the sounds of flabby merrymaking somewhere indistinctly behind him. There was a sound he couldn't immediately identify, partly because he didn't know the tune I Left My Leg in Jaglan Beta, and partly because the band playing it were very tired, and some members of it were playing in 3-4 times, some in 4-4, and some in a kind of pi-i, um, pi-r squared, each according to the amount of sleep he'd managed to grab recently. I've played in gigs like that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. He lay. <laughs> oh, so many gigs like that. Right, anyway. He lay, panting heavily in the wet air, and tried feeling bits of himself to see where he might be hurt. Wherever he touched himself, he encountered a pain. After a short while, he looked out... Uh, sorry, he worked out that this was because it was his hand that was hurting. He seemed to have sprained his wrist. His back, too, was hurting, but he soon satisfied himself that he was not badly hurt, but just bruised and a little shaken, as who wouldn't be. He couldn't understand what a building would be doing flying through the clouds. On the other hand, he would have been a little hard-pressed to come up with any convincing explanation of his own presence, so he decided that he and the building were just going to have to accept each other. He looked up from where he was lying. A wall of pale but stained stone slabs rose up behind him. The building proper. He seemed to be stretched out on some sort of a ledge or lip, which extended outwards for about three or four feet all the way around. It was a hunk of the ground in which the party building had had its foundations, and which it had taken along with itself to keep itself bound together at the bottom end. Nervously he stood up, and suddenly, looking out over the edge, he felt nauseous with vertigo. He pressed himself back against the wall, wet with mist and sweat. His head was swimming freestyle, but someone in his stomach was doing the butterfly. Even though he had got up here on his own, under his own power, he could not now even bear to contemplate the hideous drop in front of him. He was not about to try his luck jumping. He was not about to move even an inch closer to the edge. Clutching his holdall, he edged along the wall, hoping to find a doorway in. The solid weight of the can of olive oil was a great reassurance to him. He was edging in the direction of the nearest corner, in the hope that the wall around the corner might offer more in the way of entrances than this one, which offered none. The unsteadiness of the building's flight made him feel sick with fear, and after a short time he took the towel out from his holdall and did something with it which once again justified its supreme position in the list of useful things to take with you when you hitchhike around the galaxy. He put it over his head so he wouldn't have to see what he was doing. His feet edged along the ground, his outstretched hand edged along the wall. Finally, he came to the corner, and as his hand rounded the corner, it encountered something which gave him such a shock that he nearly fell straight off. It was another hand. The two hands gripped each other. 
He desperately wanted to use his other hand to pull the towel back from his eyes, but it was holding the holdall with the olive oil, the retsina, and the postcards of Santorini, and he very much didn't want to put it down. He experienced one of those self moments, one of those moments when you suddenly turn around and look at yourself and think, who am I? What am I up to? What have I achieved? Am I doing it well? He whimpered very slightly. He tried to free his hand, but he couldn't. The other hand was holding his tightly. He had no recourse but to edge onwards towards the corner. He leaned around it and shook his head in an attempt to dislodge the towel. This seemed to provoke a sharp cry of some unfathomable emotion from the owner of the other hand. The towel was whipped from his head, and he found his eyes peering into those of Ford Prefect. Beyond him stood Slarty Bartfast, and beyond them he could clearly see a porchway and a large closed door. They were both pressed back against the wall, eyes wild with terror as they stared out into the thick blind cloud around them and tried to resist the lurching and swaying of the building. "'Where the zarking photon have you been?' hissed Ford, panic-stricken. "'Uh, well,' stuttered Arthur, not really knowing how to sum it all up that briefly. Um, "'Here and there, what are you doing here?' Ford turned his wild eyes on Arthur again. "'They won't let us in without a bottle.' The first thing Arthur noticed as they entered into the thick of the party, apart from the noise, the suffocating heat and the wild profusion of colours that protruded dimly through the atmosphere of heady smoke and the carpets thick with ground glass, ash and avocado droppings, and the small group of pterodactyl-like creatures in Lurex who descended upon his cherished bottle of Retsina squawking, A new pleasure! A new pleasure! was Trillian being chatted up by a thunder god. Didn't I see you at Milliways? he was saying. Were you the one with the hammer? Yes, I much prefer it here. So much less reputable, so much more fraught. Squeals of some hideous pleasure ran around the room, the outer dimensions of which were invisible through the heaving throng of happy, noisy creatures, cheerfully yelling things that nobody could hear at each other, and occasionally having crises. "'Seems fun,' said Trillian. "'What did you say, Arthur?' "'I said, how the hell did you get here?' "'I was a row of dots flowing randomly through the universe. "'Have you met Thor? He makes thunder.' "'Hello,' said Arthur. "'I expect that must be very interesting.' "'Hi,' said Thor.' It is. Have you got a drink? Er, uh, no, actually. Then why don't you go and get one? See you later, Arthur, said Trillian. Something jogged Arthur's mind, and he looked around huntedly. Zaphod isn't here, is he? See you, said Trillian firmly, later. Thor glared at him with hard, coal-black eyes. His beard bristled with what little light there was in the place, mustering its forces briefly to glint menacingly off the horns on his helmet. He took Trillian's elbow in his extremely large hand, and the muscles in his upper arm moved around each other like a couple of Volkswagens parking. He led her away. One of the interesting things about being immortal, he said, is... One of the interesting things about space, Arthur heard Slarty Bartfar saying to a large and voluminous creature who looked like someone losing a fight with a pink duvet and was gazing raptly at the old man's deep eyes and silver beard, is how dull it is. Dull, said the creature, and blinked her rather wrinkled and bloodshot eyes. Yes, said Slarty Bartfast, staggeringly dull, bewilderingly so. 
You see, there's so much of it and so little in it. Oh, would you like me to quote you some statistics? Er, uh, well, please, I, I would like to. They, too, are quite sensationally dull. I'll uh, come back and hear them in a moment, she said, patted him on the arm, lifted up her skirts like a hovercraft, and moved off into the heaving crowd. I thought she'd never go, growled the old man. Come, Earthman. Arthur, we must find the silver bale. It is here somewhere. Can we just relax a little, Arthur said. I've had a tough day. Trillion's here. Incidentally, she didn't say how. It probably doesn't matter. Think of the danger to the universe. The universe, said Arthur, is big enough and old enough to look after itself for half an hour. All right, he added in response to Slotty Bartfast's increasing agitation. I'll wander around and see if anybody's seen it. Good, good, said Slotty Bartfast, good. And he plunged into the crowd himself and was told to relax by everybody he passed. Have you, have you seen a bale anywhere, said Arthur, to a little man who seemed to be standing eagerly waiting to listen to somebody. It's made of silver, vitally important for the future of the safety of, uni of the universe, and about this long. No, said the enthusiastically wizened little man, but do have a drink and tell me all about it. Ford Prefect writhed past, dancing a wild, frenetic, and not entirely unobscene dance with someone who looked as if she was wearing the Sydney Opera House on her head. He was yelling a futile conversation at her above the din. "'I like the hat!' he bawled. "'What?' "'I said, I like the hat. I'm not wearing a hat.' "'Well, uh, I like the head, then.' What? I said, I like the head. Interesting bone structure. What? Ford worked a shrug into the complex routine of other movements he was performing. I said, I said you dance great, he shouted. Just, just don't nod so much. What? It's just that every time you nod, said Ford, ow, as his partner nodded forward to say, What? and once again pecked him sharply on the forehead with the sharp end of her swept forward skull. "'My planet was blown up one morning,' said Arthur, who'd found himself quite unexpectedly telling the little man his life story, or at least edit hi edited highlights of it. "'That's why I'm dressed like this, in my dressing gown. My planet was blown up with all my clothes in it, you see. I didn't realise I'd be coming to a party.' The little man nodded enthusiastically. Later, I was thrown off a spaceship, still in my dressing gown, rather than the spacesuit one would normally expect. Shortly after that, I discovered that my planet had originally been built for a bunch of mice. You can imagine how I felt about that. I was then shot at for a while and blown up. In fact, I have been blown up quite ridiculously often. Shot at, insulted, regularly disintegrated, deprived of tea, and recently I crashed into a swamp and had to spend five years in a damp cave. Ha! <sighs> effervesced the little man. Uh, did you have a wonderful time? Arthur started to choke violently on his drink. What a wonderfully exciting cough! said the little man, quite startled by it. Do you mind if I join you? And with that, he launched into the most extraordinary and spectacular fit of coughing, which caught Arthur so much by surprise that he started to choke violently, discovered that he was already doing it, and got thoroughly confused. Together, they performed a lung-busting duet, which went on for fully two minutes before Arthur managed to cough and splutter to a halt. <laughs> so invigorating, said the little man, panting and wiping tears from his eyes. What an exciting life you must lead. Thank you very, very much. 
He shook Arthur warmly by the hand and wandered off into the crowd. Arthur shook his head in astonishment. A youngish-looking man came up to him, an aggressive-looking type with a hook mouth, a lantern nose and small beady little cheekbones. He was wearing black trousers. A black silk shirt open to what was presumably his navel, though Arthur had had learnt never to make assumptions about the anatomies of the sort of people he tended to meet these days, and had all sorts of nasty dangly gold things hanging around his neck. He carried something in a black bag and clearly wanted people to notice that he didn't want them to notice it. Hey, uh, did I hear you say your name just now? He said. That was one of the many things that Arthur had told the enthusiastic little man. Yes, it's Arthur Dent. The man seemed to be dancing to some rhythm other than any of the other several ones that the band were playing grimly. Yeah, uh, he said, only uh, there was a man in a mountain wanted to see you. Oh, I I met him. Yeah, only he seemed pretty anxious about it, you know? Yes, I I met him. Yeah, well, I think you should know that. Uh, I do. I met him. The man paused to chew a little gum. Then he clapped Arthur on the back. Okay, he said. All right, I'm I'm just telling you, right? Good night, good luck, win awards. What? said Arthur, who was beginning to flounder seriously at this point. Whatever, do what you do, do it well. He made a sort of clucking noise with whatever he was chewing, and then some vaguely dynamic gesture. "'Why?' said Arthur. "'Do it badly,' said the man. "'Do it. Who cares? Who gives a shit?' The blood suddenly seemed to pump angrily into the man's face, and he started to shout. "'Why not go mad?' he said. "'Go away! Get off my back, will you guys? Just zark off!' "'Okay, I'm going,' said Arthur hurriedly. "'It's been real.' The man gave a sharp wave and disappeared off into the throng. "'What was that all about?' said Arthur to a girl he'd found standing beside him. Why did he tell me to go and win awards? Just showbiz talk, shrugged the girl. He's just won an award at the annual Ursa Minor Alpha Recreational Illusions Institute Awards Ceremony, and he was hoping to be able to pass it off lightly, only you didn't mention it, so he couldn't. Oh, said Arthur. Oh, well, I'm sorry I didn't. What was it for? Uh, the most gratuitous use of the word fuck in a serious screenplay. It's very prestigious. I see, said Arthur. Yeah, uh, um, and what did you get for that? A Rory. It's just a small silver thing set onto a large black base. What did you say? I didn't say anything. I was just about to ask what the silver... Oh, I, I thought you said wap. Said What? Wap! People had been dropping in on the party now for some years. Fashionable gate crashes from other worlds, and for some time it had occurred to the partygoers, as they had looked out at their own world beneath them with its wrecked cities, its ravaged avocado farms and blighted vineyards, its vast tracts of new desert, its seas full of biscuit crumbs, and worse, that their world was in some tiny and almost imperceptible ways not quite as much fun as it had been. Some of them some of them had begun to wonder if they could manage to stay sober for long enough to make the entire party space-worthy, and maybe take it off to some other people's worlds where the air might be fresher and give them fewer headaches. A few undernourished farmers, who still managed to scratch out a feeble existence on the half-dead ground of the planet's surface, would have been extremely pleased to hear this. But that day, as the party came screaming out of the clouds and the farmers looked up in haggard fear of yet another cheese-and-wine raid, it became clear that the party was not going to be going anywhere else for a while, that the party would soon be over. Very soon it would be time to gather up hats and coats and stagger blearily outside to find out what time of day it was, what time of year it was, and whether in any of this burnt and ravaged land there was a taxi going anywhere. The party was locked in a horrible embrace 
with a strange white spaceship, which seemed to be half sticking through it. Together they were lurching, heaving and spinning their way around the sky in grotesque disregard of their own weight. The clouds parted, the air roared and leapt out of their way. The party and the cricket warship looked in their writhings like two little ducks, one of which is trying to make a third duck inside the second duck, whilst the second duck is trying very hard to explain that it doesn't really feel ready for a third duck right now, is uncertain that it would want any putative third duck to be made by this particular first duck anyway, and certainly not whilst it, the second duck, was busy flying. The sky sang and screamed with the rage of it all, and buffeted the ground with shock waves. And suddenly, with a foop, the cricket ship was gone. The party blundered helplessly across the sky like a man leaning against an unexpectedly opened door. It spun and wobbled on its hover jets. It tried to right itself and wronged itself instead. It staggered back across the sky again. For a while these staggerings continued, but clearly they could not continue for long. The party was now a mortally wounded party. All the fun had gone out of it, as the occasional broken-back pirouette could not disguise. The longer, at this point, that it avoided the ground, the heavier was going to be the crash when finally it hit it. Inside, things were not going well either. They were going monstrously badly, in fact, and people were hating it and saying so loudly. The cricket robots had been. They had removed the award for the most gratuitous use of the word fuck in a serious screenplay, and in its place left a scene of devastation that Arthur felt left Arthur feeling almost as sick as a runner-up for a Rory. "'We would love to stay and help,' shouted Ford, picking his way over the mangled debris. "'Only we're not going to.' The party lurched again, provoking feverish cries and groans from amongst the smoking wreckage. "'We have to go and save the universe, you see,' said Ford. "'And that, if that sounds like a pretty lame excuse, then you might be right. "'Either way,' We're off. He suddenly came across an unopened bottle, lying miraculously unbroken on the ground. Um, do you mind if we take this, he said. Uh, you won't be needing it. He took a packet of crisps, too. Trillion, shouted Arthur in a shocked and weakened voice. In the smoking mess, he could see nothing. Earthman, we must go, said Slarty Bartfast nervously. Trillion, shouted Arthur again. A moment or two later, Trillian staggered, shaking into view, supported by her new friend, the Thunder God. "'The girl stays with me,' said Thor. "'There's a great party going on in Valhalla. We'll be flying off.' "'Where were you going when all this was going on?' "'So where were you when all this was going on?' said Arthur. "'Upstairs,' said Thor. I was weighing her. Flying's a tricky business, you see. You have to calculate wind. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah! <coughs> Excuse me. Gosh. Uh, gruff voices are still playing havoc with me. Adenoids and stuff and tonsils. Right, we'll try that again. <coughs> right. Where were you when all this was going on? said Arthur. Upstairs, said Thor. I was weighing her. Flying's a tricky business, you see. You have to calculate wind. She comes with us, said Arthur. Hey, said Trillian. Don't I? No, said Arthur. You come with us. Thor looked at him with slowly smouldering eyes. He was making some point about godliness, and it had nothing to do with being clean. 
She comes with me, he said quietly. Uh, come, Earthman, said Slotty Bartfast, nervously picking at Arthur's sleeve. Come on, Slotty Bartfast, said Ford, nervously picking at the old man's sleeve. Slotty Bartfast had the teleport device. The party lurched and swayed, sending everyone reeling except for Thor and except for Arthur, who stared, shaking into the Thunder God's black eyes. Slowly, incredibly, Arthur put up what now appeared to be his tiny little fists. Want to make something of it? he said. I, I beg your minuscule pardon, roared Thor. I said, repeated Arthur, and he could not keep the quavering out of his voice. Do you want to make something of it? He waggled his fists ridiculously. Thor looked at him with incredulity. Then a little wisp of smoke curled upwards from his nostril. There was a tiny little flame in it, too. He gripped his belt. He expanded his chest to make it totally clear that here was the sort of man you only dared to cross if you had a team of Sherpas with you. He unhooked the shaft of his hammer from his belt. He held it up in his hands to reveal the massive iron head. He thus cleared up any possible misunderstanding that he might merely have been carrying a telegraph pole around with him. Do I want, he said, with a hiss like a river flowing through a steel mill, to make something of it? Yes, said Arthur, his voice suddenly extraordinarily strong and belligerent. He waggled his fists again, this time as if he meant it. You want to step outside? He snarled at Thor. Sorry, that's not Thor's voice. That's the wrong voice. You want to step outside? He snarled at Thor. All right, bellowed Thor like an enraged bull, or in fact like an enraged thunder god, which is a great deal more impressive, and did so. Good, said Arthur. That's got rid of him. Slarty, get us out of here. All right, shouted Ford at Arthur. So I'm a coward. The point is, I'm still alive. They were back aboard the starship Bistromath. So was Slarty Bartfast. So was Trillian. But Harmony and Concord were not. Well, so am I alive, aren't I? retaliated Arthur, haggard with adventure and anger. His eyebrows were leaping up and down as if they wanted to punch each other. You damn nearly weren't, said Ford. Arthur turned sharply to Slarty Barfast, who was sitting in his pilot couch on the flight deck, gazing thoughtfully into the bottom of a bottle, which was telling him something he clearly couldn't fathom. He appealed to him. Do you think he understands the first word I've been saying? He said, quivering with emotion. I don't know, said Slarty Bartfast, a little abstractedly. I'm not sure, he added glancing up very briefly, that I do. He stared at his instruments with renewed vigour and bafflement. You'll have to explain it to us again, he said. Well, but later, terrible things are afoot. He tapped the pseudo-glass of the bottle bottom. We fared rather pathetically at the party, I'm afraid he said, and our only hope now is to try and prevent the robots using the key in the lock. How in heaven we do that, I don't know, he muttered. Just have to go there, I suppose. Can't say I like the idea of that at all. Probably end up dead. Where, 
Where is Trillian, anyway? said Arthur with a sudden affectation of unconcern. When he had been angry, what <clears throat> what he had been angry about was that Ford had berated him for wasting time over all the business with the Thunder God when they could have been making a rather more rapid escape. Arthur's own opinion, and he'd offered it for whatever anyone might have felt it was worth, was that he had been extraordinarily brave and resourceful. The prevailing view seemed to be that his opinion was not worth a pair of fetid dingo's kidneys. What really hurt, though, was that Trillian didn't seem to react much one way or the other, and had wandered off somewhere. "'Where are my crisps?' said Ford. Uh, "'They are both,' said Slarty Bartfast, without looking up, "'in the room of informational illusions.' I think that your young lady friend is trying to understand some of the problems of galactic history. I think the crisps are probably helping her. Now I'm just going to do a quick check to see how far we've got to go. Yeah. You know what, gang? I think we're going to call it a day there. It's ten past ten. Uh, that means I think we've got a good roundup. Yeah, a good roundup for next week. So, I'll call it a day at ten past ten, CEST, for this evening. Um, and say thank you very much for your company. As always, it is such a pleasure to see you guys here. Uh, we will complete next week Life, the Universe and Everything. We'll wrap it up uh, and then take a short break uh, over the summer and come back a little later on. But the last episode of Life, the Universe and Everything, same time, same place next week. Uh, thank you, as always, for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks also for the very uh, kind messages you've, you've sent and for the encouragement. Um, see you next week. At 9 o'clock CEST. Take care, everybody. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.